You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Jawbreaker, Scurvy Legs, Kruger, MD, Big Beard, Schmarls, Logan, Cannon Monkey, The Knight of Dampier, Pablo, Nikki, Toves, Gin-Soaked Jim, Ward, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Drunken Deck, Eric the Red, the Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello, welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt, thank you for listening. Getting all the moving pieces together for the explosion of piracy around about 1692 in the Indian Ocean and the Red Sea is, well, there are a lot of moving pieces, and the deeper into it I get, the more and more pieces I seem to find. However, we are getting there, and today we've got a relatively easy task in front of us. Instead of introducing an entirely new character from scratch, we get to talk about someone we know already. Today we're talking about Edward Davis, captain of the pirate ship Bachelor's Delight. This is episode 180, A Rash, Proud Coxcomb. We're going to begin today by returning to the very tail end of the Second Pacific Adventure. And really, at this point, it's not even accurate to call it a Pacific Adventure any longer. We're hardly spending any time in the Pacific Ocean at all. But I do want to remind you of the players here. You'll recall three main groups of pirates on that Second Adventure, based around their three primary pirate ships. There was the Signet, of course, under Captain Charles Swan. We've talked about that at length. There was the Saint-Rose, under Francois Groenet at first, and later under Mathurin de Marais. And then there was Bachelor's Delight, under Edward Davis. Each of those ships had their own little fleets of sloops and barks that were under other captains. You have pirates like John Eaton and Francis Townley, George Dew, Peter Harris the Younger, Pierre Le Picard, William Knight. There are a ton of them, and we've met all of them before. Now, there are a few points about the Second Pacific Adventure that are going to be important today. First, the reason that that Second Adventure started at all. In 1683, King Charles II promulgated a decree against pirates and 
English privateers sailing for foreign princes. Then he reinstated Thomas Lynch as governor of Jamaica. At the time, Henry Morgan was acting governor, but the two together led an English campaign against piracy in the West Indies. Now, when King Charles promulgated that decree and it was read aloud in places like Port Royal, John Cook and Edward Davis were on the Mosquito Coast, far enough from civilization that they could claim they had never heard anything about it. After all, they still had letters of mark from the governor in Tortuga. Maybe they were a decade old, sure, and maybe from a long-concluded war, but they still had them. Rather than risk running into anybody who might be able to officially give them the news of the decree, they skipped town. They made for Virginia to pick up Dampier and then on to Africa to steal the Bachelor's Delight. Now this was a big deal. Bachelor's Delight, before being rechristened Bachelor's Delight, was a Dutch slaver. Its cargo, human beings intended for the slave markets, was really valuable, and in the mercantilist system that we discussed last time, stealing those human pieces of cargo was stealing directly from William III. And that's important to keep in mind here. We're going to be returning to the civilized world alongside these pirates, and that civilized world, including William III, had not forgotten that affront. The pirates in the newly christened Bachelor's Delight rounded Cape Horn and almost accidentally picked up that mosquito guide they had left on the Juan Fernandez Islands. They met up with a few other pirates, including the Signet, and then once they neared Panama, they ran into that group of French pirates. Now that's an important moment. The leader of those French buccaneers, Francois Groinet, had a bunch of letters of marque, a bunch of brand-new letters of mark from the governor in Saint-Domingue. Now, Groinet was happy to hand those letters of mark out to his English brothers, but he only did so in return for the recently captured Spanish vessel, Santa Rosa. Now, that alliance fell apart after an attempt on the Spanish treasure fleet. The fleets then split up into their three different parts. Dampier went with the Signet to cross the Pacific, and we know that story. Ravno de Luzon, a chronicler on this voyage, went with the French and an Englishman named George Dew to cross the continent through Honduras to Cabo Gracias a Dios. Now we know that story too, even though it's not yet done. But the English pirates under Edward Davis, the Bachelor's Delight, we haven't told their story. 640 pirates strong, they still had their brand new French letters of marque when they sailed south. Before they left the Pacific Ocean, the pirates stopped at the Juan Fernandez Islands one last time. Now this was always a good place to stop to collect wood and water before rounding Cape Horn, which was always a hard bit of sailing. But a ton of pirates, a bunch of Englishmen who were sailing alongside the Bachelor's Delight, chose to stay at the Juan Fernandez Islands. And I'm fascinated by that move. I mean, why would they stop at an island that was occasionally patrolled by the Spanish so far away from home? But when you begin to dig into it, it does start to make a little bit of sense. First of all, they did have some women with them. Pirates in general, whenever they encountered groups of people on land, there were always young women who thought that 
running off with a dashing sea rover and living a life of freedom and romance and adventure sounded much better than a life of domestic bliss dictated by one or another of the patriarchs who controlled her life. And this happened with sailors of all walks of life, but it's not like the East India Company was just going to let you bring some girl on board because you're just super in love. And then, of course, a bunch of the pirates were gay. So most of the pirates who chose to stay there on the Juan Fernandez probably had some kind of companionship or a lover to stay with them. And in many cases, those lovers would see the pirates and their companion shunned by society. For those who were gay, of course there would be complications in the early modern world. But then, of course, for those even who had women with them, well, say that you returned to Port Royal with one of those rescued African women, and a few of those freed slaves did choose to stay with the pirates, well, what was going to happen to her? I mean, it's not like anyone here had had time to visit a church, but many of them had spent years with these companions by this point, formed real bonds. And when they get to Port Royal, some official is going to say, Your wife, poppycock, balderdash, she can't be your wife, she's stolen property. But beyond that, many of the pirates were broke at this point. Sure, they'd earned a ton of money on their adventures, but some of them had lost all of it gambling. So doesn't a simple life on an island paradise with the lover of your choosing sound a lot better than destitution in some city while your wife is sold off to some rich old rapist slave owner. But most of all, beyond all of that, there was of course the question of arrest and execution. I mean, these pirates weren't dumb. They knew that their letters of mark from the French governor of Saint-Domingue weren't really worth the paper they were printed on. If they had a sea chest full of silver, maybe it was worth the risk of going back. But since these pirates didn't, why bother risking the gallows? And remember, the last that these pirates had heard of the English-speaking world, the king had just promulgated a decree that allowed for the extrajudicial killing of anyone even associated with the pirates, much less the pirates themselves. Given all of those variables... What would you choose to do? So it was a smaller force that sailed for Cape Horn. Now, we don't have the benefit of a record keeper like Revenaud de Luzon or William Dampier on this leg of the voyage. We don't know much about their passage. Was it maybe a fraught, near-run voyage, or maybe they found the edge of the world out there, or maybe they stumbled upon Never Never Land? And I'm not exactly joking there. Now, I don't want to get caught up in this today, but there are a lot of connections between Neverland and the Peter Pan story and this leg of this voyage. And actually, Australia is a big part of that as well. Never Never was a nickname in Victorian England for Australia. But here in December 1687, from the deck of his ship, Edward Davis did spy an island in the distance an island of coves and lagoons and sandy beaches, all of it topped by a forested mountaintop, and much of it covered, in fact coated, in bright pink flamingos. Now, William Dampier would call this island Davis Land, and postulated in his book that it was part of Terra Australis Incognita, all of which was, of course, terribly miscalculated. 
Later on, in this same voyage, Dampier would in fact stumble upon proper Australia, although he didn't realize it at the time. Now, of course, there's no Davis land today, and that's something that J.M. Barrie knew very well by about 1900. But of course, Never Neverland was in the imagination of all children, not just sitting out there in the Pacific Ocean. Now, I do want to talk more about this. It's interesting, but we're going to hold off on it today. Instead, for the time being, we're going to let Edward Davis and Bachelor's Delight make their way north on their own. In the meanwhile, we're going to turn our eyes back to Jamaica and her governors. All throughout this era, all of the years between, say, the Stuart Restoration and the Glorious Revolution, the colony of Jamaica had no proper governor. They had, you know, deputy governors and lieutenant governors and acting governors who did the job, but were never officially invested with royal authority. And all of that is thanks to the man who really should have been governor here, the Duke of Albemarle, Christopher Monk. And despite being only occasionally actually in Jamaica, Albemarle was, without a doubt, the most powerful man in Jamaica. Almost all of the acting governors and lieutenant governors, well, they were all in his pocket. Thomas Modiford and Thomas Lynch and Henry Morgan, all his. Now, at this point in our story, as 1687 turns into 1688, Albemarle was actually serving a brief stint as acting governor of Jamaica. All of his men were currently indisposed, either in jail or having fallen out of royal favor. I often turn to 1688 as kind of a focal point in our story, in the story of pirates and piracy, but it impacts so many things. I mean, just look at how it affected Jamaica here. Albemarle was acting governor at the time, but most of the real work was done by either Henry Morgan or one of his competitors named Hinder Molesworth. Now, Molesworth was a militia captain who was able enough, especially in military matters, but by no means a proper royal colonial administrator. But then, in May of 1688, Henry Morgan dies. A few months later, in August, the Duke of Albemarle himself, Christopher Monk, also died. So Jamaica was left in the hands of a man who was... Well, I don't want to completely disparage him. He would be awarded a baronet for his service here, but this was not the job for him. And of course, it being 1688, everyone knew that something, probably a war, was brewing on the horizon. But King James did have a plan here. He was going to appoint one of the most decorated and renowned naval commanders in all of England to lead Jamaica. This man, Robert Holmes is his name, Admiral Sir Robert Holmes, when the Royal Navy was established at the restoration of the Stuarts, he was one of the Navy's brightest stars. The man who was tasked with building the Royal Navy, Samuel Pepys, he saw a ton of promise in Robert Holmes. He also saw beneficial connections to King Charles. Pepys wrote, quote, He seems well acquainted with the king's mind, and with all the factions at court, and spoke with such frankness that I do take him as my lord's good friend a cunning fellow, and one that can put on several faces and look his enemies in the face with as much love as his friends. 
end quote. Pepys also called Admiral Holmes a bit later on and less charitably, quote, a rash, proud coxcomb. A coxcomb was the name for a jester's hat, you know, with the bells dangling on several points. But in Pepys' day it was another word for a fop, or a man who was obsessed with his appearance and his social standing, you know, a peacock. Now we could spend hours and episodes discussing Holmes' many naval victories and feats of valor in four major global naval wars. I mean, it's very likely that he would have been tapped as Lord High Admiral if it had not been for James, the king's brother, holding the post. Instead, after many years of good service, Holmes retired to spend his days managing his many and very profitable estates. But then, when King Charles, his very good friend, remember, when Charles died, Holmes fell in with a bad crowd. The Monmouth rebels, supporting the illegitimate son of Charles II for the throne. No, he didn't openly join the rebellion, but he made it known that he thought Monmouth would make a perfectly fine king, and if he needed a mm, steady hand at the wheel, he would find a good friend in Robert Holmes, and someone who would serve as an excellent Lord High Admiral. Now, this wasn't quite enough to get someone like Holmes arrested, but it was plenty to get him assigned to a fleet intended to rid the West Indies of their pirate menace. It was a dirty job in a dirty backwater, and it was, in effect, an exile. Holmes was expected to stick around until the job of ridding the West Indies of piracy was done, and the pirates weren't going to leave any time soon. Now, you may have noticed that we've never talked about Robert Holmes before. For such a decorated man in such an important post, why not? Well, mostly because he never got to Port Royal. Holmes spent almost two years getting all of the apparatus in place to deal with the West Indian pirates. He had several full naval squadrons complete with their requisite commanders all in place and ready to go. They would stretch from the Chesapeake Bay in Virginia all the way down to Port Royal. It was an impressive achievement, even for someone as illustrious as Admiral Sir Robert Holmes. But then, then reports started filtering in that the Dutch appeared to be up to something. Troops were massing. Naval units were gathering. It looked like an invasion. Holmes was ordered to command the Channel Forces for that fight. So he never made it to Jamaica to take up any kind of command. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. 
I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. His one-time subordinate, before Holmes retired, Rear Admiral Sir John Narborough took the job. Now, Narborough was fully capable of doing that job. The book Pirates on the Chesapeake by Donald G. Chamette says, quote, The Admiral embarked with strong personal inducements to ensure his success. Not only was he granted all profits from his and his agents' seizure of privateer and pirate vessels, but his personal authority in matters relating to his mission was to supersede that of all English colonial governors. Assisted by Thomas Lynch, his zealously active deputy and keeper of the king's privy seal and a corps of agents, Holmes pursued his objectives with the resolution of a school of piranha stripping a carcass. His ships cruised about the isolated coasts, inlets, and islets of the Americas frequented by pirates, making suddenly and occasionally indiscriminate descents on suspected vessels. Through his network of agents, Holmes waged a heavy-handed campaign of hectoring designed to dismantle the growing affiliations between governors and local councils and the Buccaneering Brotherhood. End quote. Now there are a couple of pretty big inaccuracies in that passage. You might have caught them. For example, he says that Holmes was working in the West Indies when he was busy in Europe at the time. This is a trap I've seen several historians fall into, because Holmes was still technically in charge of the operation, but he was busy dealing with the Dutch invasion. The plan, once he put this little invasion force down, was for him to pick up the job that Sir John Narborough was currently doing. And then, of course, Chamet also says that Governor Lynch was involved, assisting Admiral Holmes, but of course... Governor Lynch was four years dead by 1688. However, his assessment of the ferocity and the tactics used in this assault is spot on. And that's bad news for a pirate crew so recently returned from a year's-long voyage in the South Seas with holds that were figuratively bursting at the seams with Spanish booty. Our first word of Bachelor's Delight after leaving the Pacific comes in mid-1688. Edward Carter, captain of a privateer sloop out of Barbados, met the Delight off the coast of Brazil. Captain Carter informed Captain Davis and the rest of a major development for these privateers. On 22nd May 1687, just about a year earlier, Alongside his assignment of Admiral Holmes to Port Royal, James II promulgated yet another anti-piracy decree. Now this one built on that of 1683 with one major stipulation. While the extrajudicial killing of pirates was still allowed, 
pirates, or rather privateers, who surrendered to the authorities were to be granted pardons. And this was huge news for the pirates of Bachelor's Delight. Maybe they would now have the opportunity to go home. And sure, they might have to stop off along the way and bury a bit of treasure, but they could go home. Which is worth note, pirates did sometimes bury their treasure. Very occasionally, in the case of someone like Francis Drake or Henry Every, they did so because they just had way too much plunder to deal with. But usually it was to hide their plunder from the authorities. Or, you know, just other rival pirates. Now in most cases, the pirates would just go collect that treasure as soon as possible. It's those very few who didn't who were killed in action or executed after burying their treasure that make for the most famous stories of pirates hunting down buried treasure. But that wasn't going to be the case with Captain Davis or the Bachelor's Delight. Captain Carter also had news of John Narborough and his fleet of pirate hunters doing their very best to hunt down and capture any pirate they could before they had the opportunity to collect that pardon. Because, of course, when they did so, they got to keep the money. Now, what Captain Carter did not know at the time, and I do know, is that Narborough had basically abandoned his whole pirate hunting game by this point. It wasn't nearly as lucrative as he had hoped. The pardons did their job very quickly, and by the time he really got down to business, there just weren't that many pirates left to catch in the West Indies. Instead... Narborough decided to sail for the Silver Reef at the very southern end of the Bahamas, the resting place of La Nuestra Señora, a ship that he'd attempted to gather some treasure from several years back, only to be double-dealed by that scoundrel William Phipps. They pulled up a reasonable amount of silver, but John Narborough never managed to see a dime. At almost the exact same moment that Captains Davis and Carter were meeting up off the coast of Brazil, Rear Admiral Sir John Narborough caught a swift sickness and died at sea. 1688 But since Captain Carter didn't know any of this, he offered to escort Bachelor's Delight all the way north to Philadelphia. And that's where Davis and her crew arrived later that month. The North American colonies at this point were just the kind of corrupt and fertile and eminently lenient lands that a good pirate needed. The people of Philadelphia studiously failed to realize that this was Bachelor's Delight, the famed pirate ship. Dock records, though, prove that they did in fact know. They were more than happy to buy their illicit cargo at cut-rate prices and to accept Spanish doubloons and pieces of eight, for all of the goods and services that a pirate crew just returned to civilization might want. Beyond that, right at this moment, the English in the region had much bigger fish to fry. They were dealing with an impending war with France, they were dealing with revolution, both glorious and less so, and they had pirate problems of their own. And a privateer like Captain Davis was infamous for... What exactly? Raiding the Spanish? Good for him. And seizing a Dutch slave ship? Fine by me. I mean, it's not like William III, Prince of Orange, has any authority in the English world, after all. So, Captain Davis and the crew of Bachelor's Delight were just 
kind of free to do as they pleased. And this moment, the actions of Edward Davis and his crew in North America in 1688, it's one of those moments that's at the top of my list for things I would love to go back in time to see. Because something happened here in 1688, something big. A sea change in the pirate world was about to take place. In, you know, dimly lit dockside taverns and warehouses of the Atlantic coast, something was happening. And we don't know what it was. Because why would we? Plans were being laid for a global criminal enterprise involving a few very high-profile citizens. They weren't exactly going to put that in the broadsheets. But look at who was present at the time, in, yeah, in Philadelphia, but mainly in New York and Providence and Boston. Bachelor's Delight was there, with several famous pirates aboard. Edward Davis, yes, but he's about to walk off the stage. It also had pirates like George Rayner, who will become infamous in the very near future, and a few others, notably a pirate named Richard Wunt. But there were a host of other pirates in the region at the time. Now, I'm hesitant to name names here. We can't be sure about some of them. Thomas, too, was probably poking his nose around, but we can't be certain. See, right now, at this point in time, there was another similar moment happening down in the West Indies. Now, we're going to get to that in two weeks' time. I don't want to dwell on it today. But a ton of pirate names that you know, pirates who famously originated from New England, were at this moment in Tortuga. But here in North America, there are a few pirates that we can reliably say were here. Edward Coates, for example, Samuel Burgess, probably, and a pirate that you very likely may have heard of named William May. More significant, though, I think, are three New Yorkers. Two of them we met last time, the German-born governor of New York, Jacob Leisler, and an extremely wealthy merchant named Frederick Phillips. The third name is less prominent in society, but he's one of the key figures in our story moving forward. Adam Baldrige. Remember that name. But you don't need to worry about any of that right now. We'll look in much greater depth at what may or may not have been happening here next time. For now, I want to stick with Edward Davis. After two Pacific adventures and after acquiring a heap of silver, it was time for Edward Davis to retire. Davis sold the Bachelor's Delight to his quartermaster, George Rayner, and he bought a shallop, a, a tiny little coastal skimmer, to leave his life of crime behind him. I just bought a book, a book that I really wish I had had just a few months back. It came out earlier this year, just about the time we started talking about some of those Chesapeake Bay pirates. Pirates of the Chesapeake Bay by Dr. Jamie L. H. Goodall. She's a historian at the U.S. Army Center of Military History, specifically dealing in Atlantic maritime history and pirate history, and from her blog, it's pretty clear I owe her a debt. She's worked on digitizing all kinds of relevant pirate documents, and I've made much use of many of them. Regardless, Pirates of the Chesapeake is excellent, and you should check it out, and I'm going to read from it here. Dr. Goodall writes, quote, 
On a hot summer day back in June 1688, four men, Edward Davis, an enslaved black man named Peter Cloyce, Lionel Delawafer, and John Henson made their way down the Chesapeake in an unassuming shallop. The men were accompanied by a treasure trove of goods. Davis had three bags of Spanish pieces of eight, 142 pounds of broken silver, silk stockings, and expensive linens. Similarly, Della Wafer had three bags of Spanish currency, 37 silver plates, silver lace, 84 pounds of broken silver, and an assortment of dishes. Henson had an additional two bags of Spanish currency, including 800 pieces of eight, 106 pounds worth of broken silver, fine linens, and cloth. Together, all the goods were valued at over 2,300 pounds sterling. So, how did these men come to have such a wealth of belongings? End quote. Of course, we know exactly how they came by such a wealth of belongings around here. Now, I do want to point out that Lionel Della Wafer is Lionel Wafer. It was an alternate publication use of his name. But what's more interesting to me is how we know exactly how much each of them had. Well, Goodall answers that question as well. She writes, quote, One of Robert Holmes' agents, Captain Simon Rowe, witnessed a shallop making its way down the Chesapeake and was immediately suspicious when he saw it was carrying rather large chests. Rowe ordered the shallop to stop and, upon further inspection, seized the men and their goods and immediately shipped them off to Jamestown under suspicion of piracy. End quote. Suspicion of piracy, indeed. Now, we have some records of their interrogations in Jamestown. They were done separately, and let me tell you, when the Jamestown authorities realized exactly who they had in their possession, they were thrilled. But we're going to leave that story for another day. Those men were going to waste away in that Jamestown jail for years, off and on. The proceedings and their fight for freedom and those interrogations, well, that's a story that's full of twists and turns. It involves the London publishing market and William Dampier and the Royal Society of London, and it even proves something of a test for William III and his promise to respect English law, even when that law came from his predecessor, even when it involved pirates who stole not that long ago, a whole ship full of his Dutch slaves. That's down the road, though. Next time we're going to return to New York. We're going to look at what may or may not have been transpiring there, what plots may have been hatched among those dirty pirates and those dirtier merchants as King William's war begins to heat up at sea. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. Everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon. Everybody who has left us a rating or review wherever you listen to the show. And everybody who has recommended this show to your friends or family. You all make this show possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillick. 
If you haven't checked them out yet, you really should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight